I wanted to have a person like that that society disparages and put them in a position where uh, they are someone that society is supposed to revere and respect, a revolutionary, and, and explore those contradictions and what that would mean for the character, for the society, and, and all the other characters that inhabit the story. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my co-host Asa Wynn-Stanley in London. Asa, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right, Nora. Um, you know, things here are still COVID-related. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, let's not talk about that because it's just too depressing, <laughs> basically. It is. Can you talk about this latest story? Uh, you just published it on Tuesday. Uh, Pro-Israel lawyer faked graffiti attack. Tell us a little bit about the story and you know, how uh, how you've uh, been advancing this, this, this reporting. Yeah, so this Scottish lawyer, Matthew Burlow, is also a, a pro-Israel activist. You know, he's quite a well-known Zionist in Glasgow. Um, he, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, you know, criminal lawyer by day um, and Israel lobbyist by the weekend pro Israel activist you know he's he's on the stalls and he's doing counter protests against the Palestine solidarity movement and stuff like that but um, the Scottish regulator the the Law Society of Scotland the regulator for solicitors in Scotland um, has just issued a report basically ruling um, that he should the final decision has yet to have been made but the recommendation is being made that he should be fined because he because of his professional misconduct essentially and what he did was participate in fabricating anti-semitism that uh, he he posted on facebook about um having he 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 gave the impression and strongly stated that his home had been daubed with graffiti um, with uh, being spread with a graffiti free Palestine, um, and uh, a friend of his had posted it under a fake name uh, from a pro from a ostensibly pro Palestinian account, um, saying a quote a certain Jewish lawyer woke up this morning to find free Palestine spray painted rather prominently. No idea who was responsible. Winky face. Winky face. Winky face. Um, so, you know, it, it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of uh, preposterous. Um, but this uh, Facebook post of Stevie Harrison actually didn't exist. And it was actually Matthew Burlow's friend, Edward Sutherland, another member of the um, Glasgow Friends of Israel activist group. Um, so And uh, Burlow then replied underneath on the Facebook um saying that it was typical Scottish Palestine solidarity campaign behavior and and criminal and he knew at the time that this poster was actually his friend you know and he's wow. he's now got this sort of elaborate explanation 
um, that he's that he's been he was sort of emailing me about all day you know all afternoon yesterday um, about you know claiming that um, he had a anti-Semitic stalker and it was they were trying to entrap him and so on and so forth. But well, he it's amazing that he actually like replied to your email inquiry I, you know, to get his comment. And I know he just keeps. I mean, he, he <laughs> digging his own hole. He is. I mean, he if he was smarter, he should have just ignored the email, really. Um, but I think there's actually a method to it because he's what he's trying to do. Like he the the regulator, you know, it, if he keeps the regulator's been quite easy on him, you know, like they do have the power to basically strike him off, you know. Um, mm. And if he keep, and he's fallen foul of the regulator before for his conduct online. You know, and if if he if he um, keeps falling foul of them, he could lose his job. You know, so wow. if he did, if he was caught doing something particularly extreme, so um, I think what he's trying to do is is set up this online. He's trying to get his narrative out there, basically, right. in any way possible. Right. So it's all a bit, uh, it's all a bit intense. Like he his. Uh, there's photos of him posing online with a rifle and in an Israeli army uniform and all this kind of stuff. So um, they don't seem to have any shame, basically. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, uh, keep us posted on that, obviously. Yeah, thank you for your work <laughs> exposing these uh, ongoing hoaxes of, of people within the Israel lobby. Um, organizations from the UK to the US to everywhere in between. Um, we have a really wonderful episode for our listeners today. Um, I spoke with author, essayist, and activist Susan Abulhawa about her brand new novel called Against the Loveless World. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this interview. We're going to take a short musical break and we'll be right back with Susan Abulhawa. بمشي لحالي بنص الليل والليل مثل النهار Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. We're delighted to have author, essayist, and activist Susan Abulhawa back on the program to talk about her brand new novel, Against the Loveless World, which is out now from Atria Books. Susie, thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me, Nora. So let's dive right in. Uh, you introduce us to Nahar, your protagonist and the narrator as she tells her story from an Israeli prison dungeon called The Cube, 
Uh, we're not told yet why she was arrested and imprisoned. That comes later on in the book. But her story is both simultaneously, you know, familiar. She's a refugee. She's separated from her homeland and her family and unconventional as well. She becomes a sex worker, for example. Can you tell us about how you conceived of Nahar and her voice? So Nahar is a woman, to begin with, um, a woman of multiple names. Uh, her mother named her Nahar to keep a promise to Nahar al-Urdun, or the Jordan River, um, when she was forced to cross it. Uh, in 1967, fleeing from um, Israeli attacks. But her father recorded the name Yaqut on her birth certificate. And um, uh, it was he did that in a kind of drunken nod to his mistress at the time. Her younger brother calls her Nanu, um, just as a nickname. And uh, she adopts another name that she uses at late night parties with uh, powerful men in Kuwait. Nahar's life kind of begins uh, with, you know, modest ambitions. Um, she's, she kind of maybe comes across early on as very shallow. Um, she, she dreams of meeting the perfect man, getting married, having babies, having fancy modern appliances that'll make her friends jealous. And, um, but we also see early on like sparks of who she, she will become. She is naturally very defiant. Um, she's the kind of feminist who never really heard the word, heard of the word feminism feminist you know just has this kind of natural um problem with authority um she you know she pulls she doesn't you know she does she, she's crap in school she doesn't like her teacher she pulls pranks on them and does things that most you know good girls good girls i say that in quotes don't do um and but she's also she has this uh, uh a, a great passion for life and um, and, but very early on, you know, her, her life is derailed for many reasons, among which, you know, she ends up marrying the wrong man. Um, uh, Saddam invades Kuwait and occupies it, and, and she's forced to flee with the exodus of Palestinians from Kuwait. So, um, yeah, the story, as you said, chronicles her life from those early beginnings uh, to that, to the cube, um, the Israeli isolation cell, which is um, kind of a, a, a famous thing in security circles because it's fully automated and whatnot. And I want to talk more about the cube in a minute, but to continue talking about Nahar and her story, uh, you weave so much into her narrative. She holds the stories of the Nakba and of her mother's expulsion in 67, the layers of psychological despair through a life in exile and her own abuse and exploitation. Can you tell us about the process of writing your research and your intentions in presenting her story and why you decided to set it in Kuwait? Um, so Kuwait uh, is the is where I was born. Um, and I, uh, 
I am familiar with the country and with the people and, and, um, and also with one of its most pivotal moments in modern history, um, moment that actually kind of reshaped the whole region. And that was um, Iraqi occupation subsequent to U.S. invasion that just, you know, kind of uh, kept going <laughs> from one Arab country to another. So I wanted, you know, not much has really been written about that moment in history uh, in fiction, except, you know, uh, really warped versions of uh, from a military perspective and from a U.S. Uh, a U.S. military perspective that really don't represent um, Arabs in any any human or meaningful way um, and definitely not Palestinians who were um, who were among the, the biggest victims long term from uh, from that invasion. So that was, you know, one of the reasons or um, some of the reasons I wanted this book to take place in part in Kuwait. I'm also, you know, my choice for Nahar to turn to sex work at one point in her life um, has a lot to do with my interest in the lives of people who um, are forced to the margins of society you know as as an as a society ourselves as palestinians we are collectively pushed to the margins of the world right we're um we're all stateless uh colonized and forced to be sort of perpetual guests everywhere we are um and so yes we as a nation teeter on the margins of humanity but there are also members of our society who that we also push to the margins of our society, right? There are layers upon layers of oppression um, among the oppressed. Uh, there, so I wanted to I wanted to explore her life and her choices, and 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 what that would be like. Uh, I am not entirely unfamiliar with that um, that scene in the Gulf, it's quite pervasive. Um, so, and it's something I've always wanted to write about uh, because it's so, it's this like hidden in, in plain view. Everybody knows it, nobody talks about it. And it touches a lot of people's lives. It touches the middle, the lives of the middle class um, throughout the Gulf, because especially those who aren't, you know, Gulf nationals. So, yeah, and, and also I wanted to, I wanted to have a person like that, that society disparages um, and put them in a position where uh, they are someone that society is supposed to revere and respect, a revolutionary and and explore those contradictions and what that would mean um, for the character, for the society, um, and 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 all the other characters that inhabit the story. 
And through these experiences, um, she and the other characters have conversations about Western hegemony in the region. You can kind of track their political education as these world events unfold. And, and actually, somewhere around the middle of the novel, a character is joking about how the Gulf states would one day be siding with Israel against Iran, betraying Palestinians. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's kind it's of a... hard to predict, and this happened, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Um, talk about the political education of your characters, um, from the Palestinian communists to the work of James Baldwin against the backdrop of U.S. imperialism and, of course, Israeli domination and control? So the, there's, to all of our lives, to Palestinian lives, no matter you know what we're writing about, there's always this political backdrop that, um, that shapes our lives in some way. Uh, and it is, you know, politics is so much a part of our conversations our daily conversations, our lives and our memories, especially, you know, we, um, we inherit, we inherit these memories, um, from our ancestors. And it's a responsibility that we all feel to sort of investigate them and hold on to them and pass them along. Um, so, uh, so all of this sort of plays in, in the backdrop. Um, but it is, it's not, and I want to emphasize this, it is like, it's not in the foregrounds, um, or at least I tried for it not to be. Um, it's the lives of the, of the people, the characters that inhabit the story, um, who have to navigate these political realities. Um, Nahara's transformation happens um, gradually over the course of the novel um, from this kind of very shallow woman to a woman who is um, who engages with the world very differently and engages intellectually. She um, not because she couldn't engage intellectually before. Um, but she didn't think she could, and she didn't have the confidence to do that. And she didn't have the tools or the books or, um, or the encouragement to do that. And it's only, um, at some points in the novel, and I don't want to give, give things away, but, uh, that she, she is sort of introduced to these writings that really comport with the things that she believes and the things, you know, there are moments, there are a couple of moments in the book where she's talking about um, something and she, she, she realizes that it's not something she ever really thought about. And, and she's just kind of hearing her thoughts for the first time as they come out of her mouth. Um, one of these instances is when she's speaking to a gay young man whose father had brought him to, um, to, to her to make him a man, you know, uh, quote unquote. And so she has these, these kind of natural instincts toward, um, leftist ideologies and, and beliefs, but she never had the language for them. But then, you know, in reading Hassan Kanafani and James Baldwin and others, um, she, she, sort of gains this new language um, for things that were already inside of her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's um, confirmation, and, and you can really see that in her. Yeah. yeah. 
And she's also um, not as also a dancer um, and, a, and a hell of a dancer. Uh, right. She, she dances uh, better than like the Kuwaiti kids at their own traditional dance. Better than their best is what they've said to her. <laughs> yeah. Um, but not just Kuwaiti dance, but in, you know, Eastern dance in general. And, and this kind of, she has a whole philosophy about dance and, and what it means. And that philosophy actually informs her, um, at some point it informs her political, um, ideology and she manages to convince, um, you know, seasoned fighters of, you know, of her theory, um, which ends up being called chaos theory. Uh, and, you know, readers have to kind of, you know, read the book to, to get to that. But um, I mean, I, she, I mean, I found Nahar to be a really remarkable um, woman. And in many ways, she really wrote herself, you know, and, and this has happened with really all of my characters and, and everything I've written. Like at, at some point, you kind of get to know them. Um, you know, you, you start creating them, right. But then they become who they are and then they kind of, and then they tell you when you're right or when you're wrong and they tell their own story. And then you kind of, as a writer become just almost like a conduit, you know, did you ever have struggles with her in that way? Um, so yes, there was, um, so one of the things uh, that I struggled with as a writer and then and I struggled with Nahar as a writer too um, was around sex, her sexuality when she does finally fall in love. Um, and I rewrote these parts um, as well as some of the cue parts, uh, but actually mostly the, the, the sexuality part more than any other um, and the, the sexuality with the man she loves, because, um, you know, Nahar is coming into this intimacy, this like emotional intimacy um, with a lot of baggage, a lot of sexual baggage that um, whereby her whole experience with sex had been deeply traumatic and painful and exploitive um, and uh, and transactional. And, but here she, she develops, um, a closeness with a man that she loves. Um, and there, there's an intimacy emotionally and intellectually. Um, but her body, uh, was out of sync with that. So there were moments in, in writing some scenes where I just felt like Nahid was saying, no, I just, I don't want him to touch me. I, I don't want to have sex. I just, I, I love him, but I don't want this. So, um, yeah, those, those were moments in the book when I had to just sort of back off and see how that would play out between the two of them. And on the other hand, uh, Bilal, the man she loves, uh, himself is broken in different ways. Um, he was a fighter. He had been, you know, tortured in Israeli jails. Um, you know, he, uh, uh, he, in, in a lot of ways, he was spiritually broken um, and also physically. So 
um, the way their bodies came together was was a difficult road um, and it was awkward. Um, and then finally, you know, they fit and it worked. Um, and I and I getting to that moment and I wasn't sure they would get to that moment, you know, and I had to leave it open that maybe they just never have sex and, that, you know, and how would that work? So, yeah, so there was those were the moments where like I, I struggled with, with Nahar because me, you know, Susie, the writer, um, I just want them to fall in love and, you know, have, have wonderful, loving, you know, intimate, affirming sex. Um, but that's not what they wanted. Nahar eventually is able to go to Palestine and there's a softening to her character, which takes place pretty immediately. And, and as a reader, at least you can really feel her relief at being able to finally visit her homeland. Uh, but she's also quickly consumed by feelings of being a stranger, being unaccepted, uh, pretty vulnerable emotionally. Tell us a bit about that and what compels her to push against that and come back. Mm. Um, so I, uh, so it wasn't, I didn't really feel so much of a softening with Nahid when she went to Palestine. Um, it may have been sort of a hopefulness because, you know, being, she was suddenly a refugee from Kuwait. Like she, her, Kuwait was her country as far as she was concerned. She thought she was never going to leave there. She was going to live there for the rest of her life. It was the only place she knew. And suddenly she finds herself, um, a refugee in Jordan and, uh, and for various reasons, she could never settle in Jordan. It just never worked. And so going to Palestine was, um, and of course she had been there as a child and they still had family. Uh, but, but stepping into Palestine was almost like a new beginning for her. But very quickly, as you, as you observed and pointed out, she, there, there, she doesn't quite fit and there is an awkwardness and, um, and she, a lot of her walls go up too. Um, there are issues surrounding her reputation that preceded her there. You know? Um, and she, part of the novel is how she contends with that and what she does and why, um, yeah, and I I wanted to. Uh, that was a lot really interesting for me as a writer to to explore that because I think you know we all have we all romanticize um, things that were taken from us or things that we can't have or um, and then you go there and you realize that like um, it, that it's not necessarily this perfect utopia this romantic image that you had in your head um and I think we all have that you know this nostalgia for home and then you go home and you realize there's you know there's never any working water and you gotta like you know um and everybody's in your business all the time and you know so just I mean things that we all encounter when we go back and then you find all the things that you really do love and you're like oh yeah everybody's speaking Arabic around me I got family I got love I have you know gatherings I got a place to go a place to fall back on I mean those are all real and so is the you know you know all the other annoying things um 
uh, that that happened as well. And she's uh, she she visits like an ancestral home um, mm-hmm. in her family. I think it's in Haifa. Um, and t- tell us a little bit about that. You know how you narrated this very visceral experience for her. Um, being able to to actually physically touch part of her family's roots. Yeah. Um, so that part is, I mean, you know, we all, I think all Palestinians have experienced that in one way or another, either through either directly ourselves, our parents, our grandparents, or uh, people we know, or, you know, lots of, there's lots of stories and videos and, and tales and chronicles of, of those um, encounters. So that wasn't hard to imagine at all. Um, but the, uh, but the, the scene surrounding that, um, at, in some parts is actually, is, is humorous, um, you know, with the stolen car stuff and, um, but I, I felt like that scene was essential to, um, to all to to her background and to her parents and to the anguish this kind of quiet silent but ever ever present static of 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 a private and public wound that all Palestinians have in one way or another and another big wound that runs through the course of the novel is the cube. Uh, you mentioned it at the beginning. It's like this automated prison cell. And there's several smaller chapters in the book named for each of the directions that the wall faces and the inside of it as well. Um, can you tell us yeah. how you envision this Israeli dungeon and how Nahar defies her confinement? So the cube like you said, there, there are seven sections in this book and each section opens with a chapter from the cube. And the, as you also mentioned, they're directional. So there's the cube North, the cube South, the cube East, West, up, down, and everything in between. And, um, the the cube itself is wholly is completely imagined. Um, I don't, I didn't know of of places of you know isolation cells that were completely automated like that. But it's not you know it's not far from. It doesn't seem so far fetched. Um, I think that you know the prison industry and the bondage industry is always coming up with you know technological cutting edge bondage. (laughs) So, um, and that kind of represents something else, uh, that Israel is always touting itself as, you know, this startup nation. Well, yeah, you're, you excel in, um, technological death and technological pain. And Nahid is, is at the center of that. The, the reason for making those chapters and those sections directional in that way is based on um, the sense that I got from reading about people who had lived in isolation um, and speaking to some of them or watching interviews with them, uh, That, which is that, you know, being in a small confined place 
um, forces YouTube to go inward. And Nahar did that. And she ended up making this tiny little nine square meter space, which is, you know, less than 100 square feet into um, she fits so much into it. She fit an entire universe into it. And, and that was the purpose of making it directional because just when you like, you think, okay, what more can you talk about with all these like gray walls? But she does, you know, she has, she has a philosophy, like on the Western wall is where her, her bracelets, her shackles have to plug in. Um, and there's this whole story about, you know, what the things she does on the wars she waged on that Western wall where she, you know, in order to get pen and pencil where she's writing her story, she had to, you know, um, do some things (laughs) on a wall. And, um, uh, so yeah, so that was the whole idea of, uh, basically showing how much you can actually fit into nine square meters when that's all you have and you have nowhere else to go. And, and it also allowed for this, um, for, uh, uh, to introduce this, you know, concept of time and timelessness or, or the absence of time and, and confinement. As the author and, and your deep intimate relationship with your character, uh, where do you think she is now after the story ends? You know, do you keep tracking her? What is it like as the creator of this world? I don't think that's, I mean, I feel like that's something for readers, um, not not for the author. I think people sort of see a book as being complete and finished once it's published and it's being sold. Um and I, I don't think so. I think there's still a very crucial segment of a book's life. And that's, you know, what happens to it in the hands of readers. Um, readers are kind of get are the ones who get to pass judgment. Like I as an author, I don't, you know, it's not my job and nor should it be um, mine to to pass judgment on the characters. But readers get to do that. And they get to pass judgment on her life and on her and on the other characters. And they they get to make of it what they want. And they get to talk about, you know, what touched them, what what they hated, who they loved, who, you know, all that. So I think all of that is just as much a part of the book as as the making of the book. Um, and so all of that in the question that you just asked is the domain of of readers as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think now would be a good time to ask if uh, if you wanted to read a few pages from from your book and yeah, maybe set it up a little bit. Tell us um, in the context of you know where this is taking place and and yeah, go for it. So this scene takes place the first time that Nahir meets Umburak. Um, Umburak is a is a major character in this book um, and. This is the introduction that the reader gets to her. And hopefully by the end of the book, um, the reader will love Umburak in the way that Nahir does. Um, but neither Nahir uh, nor the reader, I, I suppose, um, is going to love Umburak in the beginning. For many years, I have wondered what my life would have been had I not agreed to go to that wedding. 
It was the first time I'd been outside the house in weeks. I had taken too much time off from work and expected to be fired soon. Sabah and I passed the day getting groomed and pampered. The steam and hard scrubbing of a Moroccan hammam reawakened my skin. It felt I felt renewed, reinvented by water. We lay side by side through the scrubs, massages, and body oiling. We got facials, manicures, and pedicures. Our hair was blown out and styled. And after we ate lunch, we took a nap and went back for makeup, then got dressed and headed to the wedding. I don't remember much about that evening, except that the more I danced, the less my heart hurt. The music was mostly pop Khaliji, Egyptian, and Lebanese, but they played some of the classics with a tacht orchestra and some instrumental taqsim. There were enough of us from the Levant that they even played a jafra, and we let up the dance floor, stomping out a high-stepping debke. I dragged the bride into the middle as we debked around her, and she liked that. I only stopped dancing when the DJ paused for the women of both families to exchange compliments and declare what an honor it was to give away or to receive the bride. An older Kuwaiti woman sat down at our table and squeezed into a chair next to me, introducing herself simply as a relative of the bride. It's a good thing Khaliji weddings are segregated. All these women would have torn you to pieces if you were dancing like that in front of their husbands. Palestinian weddings are mixed, right? She asked. Usually, but it depends on the family. Some are more traditional and keep things separate, but usually they're mixed, except for the Hennanite and sometimes the Zephe. Does your husband let you dance at mixed Palestinian weddings? I hesitated, unsure if I could still claim to have a husband. He doesn't mind. I hear your husband is a Palestinian hero, the woman said. It was the way she said it, like she, like she knew something. I nodded and turned away. Pardon me for being nosy, she said. I tend to run off at my mouth, but I mean no harm. I'm sorry if I offended you. What did you say your name was? Umburah. It's nice to meet you, Yakut. It seemed this bitch knew a few things about me. My legal name wasn't a secret, but not many people knew it. I stared her down. Oh, there I go again, running off at the mouth. I know what you're thinking. You're wondering how I know your name. I'm sorry. I was intrigued watching you dance. I asked the bride and she told me. I didn't respond, unsure what to make of her. She smiled. I know I'm older than you, but I'm just trying to strike up a friendship. A few of us are going to finish out the night at another party when this one breaks up. I wanted to see if you'd like to join us. To my 20-year-old eyes, she looked ancient, but I know now that she was barely 40. The wedding party will go on well past midnight. Who's even awake at that hour? I asked. I'll never forget her reaction. Her lips widened more than seemed possible, expanding over large teeth with a prominent gap that was off center from her nose. And she laughed, a frightening high-pitched cackle. Oh, darling. A whole part of Kuwait comes alive only after midnight, she said. I must have recoiled, 
because she closed her enormous mouth and stopped laughing. Here, take my pager in case you change your mind. She handed me a card. It surprised me that she had a pager. Only doctors and business people use them. I thought maybe she was someone important and that changed my attitude. I accepted the card with gratitude and gave her my home number. Why is an old woman giving you her pager number? It's weird, Sabah said, watching Umburaq walk away. Susan Abuhawa, the novel again is called Against the Loveless World. We'll have links to it on the podcast blog post that accompanies this interview on the Electronic Intifada. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nora. It was a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you um, reading the book and talking about it um, and letting your listeners hear about it as well. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>